an address delivered before the Virginia Convention of Delegates by Patrick Henry on March 28, 1775. Mr. President, no man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the House. But different men often see the same subject in different lights. And therefore, I hope that it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite to theirs, I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason towards my country and of an act of disloyalty towards the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre Richard. I'm joined with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. And today we are honored to have Congressman uh, Warren Davidson joining us from Ohio, although I believe he's in Washington, D.C. currently, but um, or in a secret location, right? Um, Congressman, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for uh, the opportunity to join you. And thanks for, frankly, building a good audience. And so look forward to the dialogue. I am in Washington, D.C., and as, uh, as we're recording this, uh, Congress is uh, awaiting the text to come from the secret chambers where the you know, next version of Bankrupt America uh, is drafted. Is this how the father, founding fathers intended for the legislative process to function, or are there alternative ways to um, procedurally to, to make sure that everyone is heard and that we have a, a, a fair process? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the founding fathers would be stunned. I mean, I think they thought the House was going to be this superpower uh, of the government. They, they believed it was the preeminent branch. Uh, the Speaker of the House is called the People's House. Uh, they put huge constraints on it by saying, hey, you only get a two-year term because we didn't want anybody to come too powerful out of it. They put the check of the Senate. Uh, they limited the things they could do uh, in theory by the Constitution. They put the check of judicial review on it because they really feared that this um, body of the House of Representatives would be, you know, dominant and all powerful. And uh, it might, uh, you know, shock them 
quite a lot to see how uh, how weak Congress has become. Uh, and it's led to, you know, two things governed by cell phone and pen, regardless of who the president is, massive executive authority and down in the agencies, lots of rulemaking uh, by people that are never elected. You know, we're going to probably talk about that today with action from Treasury and the SEC. Uh, and then you look at the judicial power, you know, the massive power the judiciary has. All of that has come at the expense of Congress kind of giving that away. When you look at spending, you know, we have an official appropriations process, but that's never what's actually followed at the, at the end of the year. Um, you know, usually there's, uh, you know, to move the deadline out. And then a handful of people draft a, a giant bill called an omnibus in, in secret. And, uh, and it comes out, you know, generally with about 24 hours to read, you know, 2000 or so pages. Wow, that's astonishing. And, and really, you know, you, you, you mentioned that it was kind of um, self-inflicted in the sense that um, only, only in the House of Representatives can you introduce a, a bill, right, that, um, that would become law. And so all of this whole system was, was created by the House in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you can the spending bills have to originate in the House. So, uh, so when you look at uh, you know the the process for spending the money, um, you know, Congress, the House, truly could control this. Uh, and you know, on process grounds alone, uh, I, my hope is that a sort of across party lines, there's a coalition that that forms that says, yeah, I mean, even if I like the overall final product, no one's going to like everything about a bill that has a 435 member board, right? <laughs> um, to, it has to get a majority to pass. It's, there's gonna be things in there you don't necessarily like to get a compromise, but the whole process on, the, on that ground alone, it should just be rejected. Um, and the, you know, you think one 435th, uh, you know, one member 435 uh, total members in the house is a, is a fairly small amount of power. But in this process, the speaker sucks up almost half the power of the house and uh, it's been astonishing to me to watch so many people when Republicans were in power or Democrats were in power kind of defer to the leadership that continues this broken status quo. It, so part of the issue to me seems that um, the government has grown so large that uh, a lot of even, for example, you know, agency power, you know, going to the executive branch um, and then becoming policymakers. Uh, is is because th there's so many issues, and that uh, the House wouldn't be able to legislate the entire administrative state. Um, do you, do you, do you think there's some truth to that, or that that you know the the House should rise to the challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the House should rise to the challenge. Constitutionally, we're required to, and and it, yes, I believe the House could do the challenge. They have to divvy up the work better. There really are a lot of talented people in the House of Representatives. It was astonishing when I got here and you look at the, the backgrounds and the credentials that people come here with. Uh, you know, there's a kind of a cliche story that says when you first get here, you're, you're kind of in awe of the place and you're like, you know, starstruck a little bit. And you're like, how in the world did I get here? And then you sit into some of the meetings and you listen to some of the ideas of your colleagues from all over the country. And you're like, how did they get here? You know, and uh, so there's that. But on the other side, you look at some of the folks here, you're like, wow, you know, we have some pretty talented folks. Uh, and when you don't let the process work, their voice isn't heard. And, you know, it's, it's more than just the member whose voice isn't heard. It's the people from the rest of this country whose voices aren't heard uh, through an amendment and debate. We used to have a path where 
uh, there was an open amendment process on the floor and uh, that hasn't been done since um, May of 2016. So the entire time I've been in the house, there's been no open amendments. Uh, everything tends to be more and more closed where the deals are all negotiated. It comes to the floor, no way to even offer a debate amendments and it's a yes or no vote. Um, and frankly, both parties, both parties have done that. So, you know, I, I hope that we can kind of form this coalition and divvy up the work. One example of this that's broken, you think how important and how broken healthcare is in the country. There's not a single healthcare committee. It's divvied up amongst uh, technically three committees in terms of areas of responsibility for healthcare. And rationally, if you want to solve a problem, you align um, responsibility authority so that you can have accountability. Right. And here it stays kind of this, uh, well, no, no, this, that, wait, you know, and, and it, it, what it does is it limits accountability for the result. So I, I think one of the most important things you could do structurally in the house is reform, you know, some of the structure of it to provide accountability. And that did happen when, you know, financial services was created as an example, which is the committee I'm on. I see. And that reform would be done by, by the speaker or by, by a legislative process. Um, how does that work? Well, that works. You have the house has its own rules, right? So, you know, uh, even if there was a challenge to, you know, the rules of the house and say, well, we want the court to fix this. The court would basically look at the constitution and go, well, you know, each chamber, the house and the Senate make their own rules. You know, our rules are different than the Senate's rules. Um, but generally here's the irony ahead of every major bill, there's a vote on the rule. And why is there a rule vote? Well, at the most basic level, it sets the terms for the debate. You know, we're going to have an hour of debate for each side or 10 hours of debate five, divided five and five, you know, whatever the, the terms of the debate are. But also, it generally waives the rules of the House, the standing rules of the House, that would, for example, allow a, uh, amendments to be offered if they're germane to the topic of the bill. So that's generally waived right away. And so the rules generically aren't too bad. It's the path to waiving them. And one of the things that I've proposed is a, a, a rule change that would say to waive the rules, you have to have, you know, three fifths um, so that you have to at least follow your own rules um, unless you have a super majority. So a simple majority waives the rules and people generally don't cross party lines. It's kind of viewed as a, uh, you know, team, team vote. So is part of it is that, you know, I would imagine quite a few politicians are people pleasers, right? And so they're not necessarily going to be confrontational or disagreeable. Um, you know, I think LBJ was famously very disagreeable and he would get into people's faces. But um, is there, is, is it that, um, you know, a lot of the House members don't want to get into confrontations, don't want to stand up for some principles and, it's, it's, you know, they, they don't see it as being important in terms of you know, the, the bigger picture of what they're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think your observation about um, the default um, is only partially accurate. I mean, you think of, there's all these firebrand uh, people that have become iconic over time. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think in general, there are a lot of people who go into politics who are, you know, kind of the human equivalent of golden retrievers. They want to be loved and and appreciate it, but they're not always useful, right? So they're not, golden retrievers aren't considered a working breed. I mean, they're, they're great pets, they're great family folks, but if you really want work to get done, you look at, you know, different breeds of dog. And, you know, there's a mix of that in Congress, frankly, not to, not to draw too many analogies, but, 
there's a mix. I mean, you've got your get your kind of pit bull personalities in Congress, uh, you know, just like in uh, the rest of society. So I think in a lot of ways, the place is more representative of the people and personalities and uh, than I expect. We're kind of overly dominated by people that went to law school, uh, but that's even more diverse than uh, I think most people would expect. Do, do law schools do a good job of teaching about the Constitution? I don't know. I never went to law school. Yeah, I was a, I was an Army Ranger business guy. You know, so I was in the Army, got out, got into business. I did go get an MBA, but uh, the Army does a good job of teaching about the Constitution, right? That's what your oath is is foreign uh, to defend. Yeah, you know that's interesting. It, it, I think the Army could do a little bit more on that in terms of education. I mean, I, I've been out since two thousand, um, but you know, when we would uh, re-enlist people, that was that would be one of the things I'd always do. I used to keep a copy of the Constitution behind my desk. I would ask people about their oath of enlistment, or you know, for you know somebody junior as an officer, their oath, and say, well, when's the last time? You know, what's your oath? And a lot of people don't remember what is your oath. Some people do. I say, let's remember the oath. And we'll reread the oath. And I'll say, well, so when's the last time you read the Constitution? And for a ton of them, it's, well, I mean, I had civics in high school. I guess I read it. You know, um, uh, you, you read it enough to pass the test, right, uh, for a lot of people. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, believe it's important, but they don't necessarily read it. Um, they're trusting that members of Congress or their elected representatives do. Um, and, and oddly enough, part of, um, I mean, I was a history major, so I kind of got into it a little bit more. Um, than your average, you know, engineering major would, for example. Um, but, you know, living life in the Army kind of gave that because when uh, there was debates over whether the war was constitutionally authorized or not, can the president do this, the president can't do that, it really affects you pretty directly. So you go, well, let me look that up. What does it say? It's interesting that uh, so many people are willing to kind of defer to others to uh, look at the Constitution and make interpretations uh, based on that and actually even just know what the, the rules actually are. There's a great parallel in the Bitcoin world where you have people who are willing to run their own node and actually, you know, take, you know, uh, put a stake down in, in the rules that they consent to. And then there's a lot of people who just defer uh, to third parties to uh, decide what those rules can be for them. Um, and they, they purely rely on the goodwill of those people to uphold uh, what they think are the rules of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think anything like that, it, you know, people tend to defer to others in, uh, in, in, in all sorts of things, you know, car maintenance, computer maintenance, you, you know, you name it, uh, you know, taking care of a house. If you've got it, you call, I don't, I don't want to know about plumbing. I want the plumbing to work, but I want to call somebody who's an expert and they take care of it. So you know, third parties aren't common, but when it comes to spending your own money, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, more and more a, a cashless society, but, you know, cash is permissionless. So if we agree, you know, hey, to fix my plumbing, I'll give you this much cash. Uh, there's no need for an invoice, a, a bank to be involved or anything else. Uh, you come, you fixed it, my plumbing now works, here's cash. Uh, and you can do that. Now, in general, the government doesn't like that because they want to make sure they can catch anybody who's not paying their taxes. They want to catch, uh, did you get paid? This is one of the offensive parts about the 16th Amendment. It's not the idea that there would be an income tax, but to collect an income tax, the government really has to engage in a, in a kind of crazy level of surveillance where it's really saying, say, did somebody pay you or did you pay somebody else? You better tell us, right? And, uh, you, you know, we have to have a tax system to work, but 
But that's one of the, to me, the most objectionable things about the 16th Amendment. And when you pull it down to our money, um, we're essentially talking about an era where if uh, we don't preserve cash, which I, I think we should, and we should keep it legal tender everywhere, uh, personally, and people will find that ironic because I'm so into digital assets and, and digital payment systems, but it's the only thing that you have a high confidence is currently going to stay permissionless. And the big debate we're having now is, as you alluded to, self-hosted wallets or the idea that, you know, you could run your own node or you could store, you know, um, you know, a, a, a digital asset on any number of devices uh, to be retrieved whenever. Um, and, and that is akin to, should I really have to check with the government or a third party that they've deputized to be able to reach into my wallet and hand to somebody else? And I think that's a, a crucial fight to have for the nature of our economy. I think it's a really interesting point you make about the uh, surveillance that kind of becomes necessary as baked into the 16th Amendment with the, the income tax. And uh, I think that applies elsewhere too, uh, that affects the same topic, which is just, you know, as soon as you come at uh, the, the uh, money of our nation with a sort of Keynesian worldview, for instance, uh, where you are so focused on fine tuning and optimizing aggregate statistics, it demands that you have like a full knowledge of every single bit of economic activity, such that once again, you need more uh, surveillance and control of people's money um, so you can decide, you know, how, how better to tune, oh, people should be actually be spending here. We see that they're, they're spending on this thing. I want them to be spending on this thing or they're not spending enough, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of baked into the pie itself. No, and, and you look at, um, you know, the financial system, is it really, uh, um, you know, the whole point of money, is it really a store of value and a means of exchange? Or is it uh, effectively a system of control? And you know, as you look at the linkage to central banking, um, yeah, um, central banks uh, around the world, many of them have embraced uh, negative interest rates. I mean, not just negative real rates. The US has had negative real rates for a while. There's a nominally positive number there, but when adjusted for inflation, it's been negative and, and now more so. Um, but in Japan, for example, they're literally uh, charging people to hold cash. And to really perfect that system, uh, you have to eliminate cash. You have to make it so people can't, uh, you know, hold things in cash um, that can't be easily surveilled. Uh, and that drives uh, people from holding cash and putting it into the economy. And that's the effect of a lot of what we're doing, whether, whether it's in um, regulatory policy or, you know, people don't necessarily connect the dots in terms of the amount of spending the federal government's doing, if we have a little bit of excess spending, you can borrow money and, and you know, people in retirement funds and hedge funds and uh, other countries or whatever will buy U.S. treasuries and lend us the money. They, they, it's a, like a bond offering. But what's been going on for a long time is we're spending so much more money than what the market can absorb. Uh, the Fed is essentially enabling the treasury to print money uh, and you can see that in any number of graphs, but the, I like the M2 chart that shows the supply of money um, and the growth of that. And when you're printing the money, no real lender, it's diluting inherently has to be diluting the value of all the other dollars. Um, so people are taking those dollars, putting them into other assets. Uh, and, um, you know, no, no secret, wealthy people have more assets. 
than you know wage earners. And so um, it, it's growing uh, the value of the the inflated assets uh, in this space. You know holders uh, are are in some way greatly appreciative for this dynamic. It's it's massively inflating the value of assets. Uh, but we should always remember that this is coming, um, you know, at the expense of what's happening to our overall economy. Working class Americans and savers are being crushed as their dollars are, are uh, you know, being undervalued and destroyed by printed money. Absolutely. So I, I really agree with, with the point on, on cash dilution and that it really is very regressive in that it affects um, the, the lowest income uh, people because of the simple fact that um, when you're operating in the economy, when you're just getting started, um, you start at cash, right? You're, you're getting p- paid a paycheck in cash and you might be living paycheck to paycheck, but you're still holding cash between those paychecks as you draw down on your, your balance. Um, and so these people have 100% of their balance sheet in cash. And they're just trying to, they're trying to stay afloat. They're trying to tread water. And uh, the Fed is coming in and diluting out, diluting, diluting. Uh, and so I, it, you know, I think that it's really making income inequality worse in the United States, um, this, this, this monetary policy, um, on top of other issues, which, and, and one of the issues that I think is especially relevant uh, to Congress is that, I think in the classical liberal tradition, um, one of the ways that you constrain the size of government is with balanced budgets. So that in order to spend more, we're going to have to tax more. And when we tax more, that's going to give citizens the opportunity to tell their representatives, hey, we're getting taxed too much. Can you please not do that? Or we will elect someone else in two years. Um, And when we remove that feedback mechanism by enabling the Federal Reserve and Treasury to just print money and just keep printing without any accountability or any kind of checks and balances, it it undermines our system of government. And it, um, to, to, to me, is the number one political issue in the United States today. No, that's 100%. I mean, I'm so excited to hear you phrase it that way. That's exactly the issue. And the perverse part about it is uh, because people, you know, wage earners that are living paycheck to paycheck are struggling um, so much, um, a lot of the political posturing from people that know better, that know all these same facts. I mean, I don't blame the average person that doesn't get into this kind of stuff, but the people that know this they're out there pandering and saying, we should give you more money. We should pay you not to, to work. We should print the money even more. Um, and, uh, and it's very disingenuous because they know that it's just a timing thing. It's a different kind of tax and who gets hurt. It's really theft from the next generation uh, heavily. Uh, and um, it, it, it does exactly what you're talking about. It makes people pretend that there's not a trade-off in the decision paradigm. It, there's a trade-off. It's just people that aren't even at the table to have a voice. They're getting stuck with the check. And when it's resource constrained in the near term, you do have to say, gee, you know, and we sort of, in my opinion, tried it. It's like, well, we had this really confiscatory tax system and uh, we didn't do real well with domestic investment. People were trying corporate inversions. They were moving their cash offshore. Um, even companies that, that uh, uh, 
have a very progressive kind of social posture like Facebook and, and uh, Google, um, you know, Apple, for example, you know, they had hundreds of billions of dollars offshore that they brought back after, you know, right around three years ago, the tax code in the United States was reformed heavily for corporations. Um, they didn't bring all that money back into the U.S. because they thought Donald Trump was such a swell guy, right? They brought it back because the tax code made it rational to bring it back into the United States. So there really are big consequences for the tax policy. And so people that know that as well continue to go posture as if there was some level of taxation that would make the level of spending that's being promised affordable. And uh, that, that's also just dis disingenuous. And, and, um, and, and the dilemma is solved. They've got this fancy thing, modern monetary theory. And if you tell Republicans uh, that, that uh, we want to try modern monetary theory, generally they'll say, oh, that's a horrible idea. And then when you point out exactly, here are the details. Tell me what's different about that than what we're doing right now. You've got a sample pack, a very large, long-running sample pack of modern monetary theory right now, and it isn't going to end well. That's exactly right. We're, we're already living in that uh, modern monetary theory world. Um, and, and, you know, the, how, how do we get out of this, right? It's, it seems like we're like in a, in a, in a trap um, institutionally. Um, and I, the last politician that I heard really talking about this on a national stage in presidential debates was Ron Paul. Um, and um, since then, you know, I, I, I don't always watch the debates, but I, I watch the Donald Trump debates because I find him to be a, a very charismatic person. Um, but um, the, 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 the issue of money printing and of, um, of this lack of accountability didn't really come up or even of balanced budgets, right? It seems like there's bipartisan support for running you know, trillion, multi-trillion dollar deficits uh, in, in 2021. It's really a matter yeah. of who do you want to give it to? Right. Yeah, you're right. And, and look, we didn't get $27 trillion in debt because one political party is great on spending. You know, both parties, uh, it's a bipartisan, um, you know, desire to spend the money. Uh, there is a debate about where to spend it or how to spend it. There's a debate about, you know, what's the right level of taxation. Um, but the consensus is uh, we can just keep spending the money. Uh, on balance, uh, you know, obviously most of Congress votes for the spending or it wouldn't pass. Uh, conservatives tend to, uh, conservative libertarian leaning folks tend to vote no on the excessive spending uh, and far left uh, democratic socialists, left left progressives sometimes will vote no because they believe there should be even more spending or, you know, skew it a different way. Um, but look, in my view, the, the, this is a recipe for um, chapter 11. I mean, I think the good news is that we're not looking at, you know, chapter seven, like blockbuster, poof, America's gone. Uh, because we defaulted, it'll be chapter 11. We, we have a wealth of resources. We have the most vibrant economy in the world. Uh, we are truly the land of opportunity for people from everywhere. Um, but you can go bankrupt, right? I mean, you can collapse your monetary system. And when you think about the, the attention monetary policy has gotten this year, uh, it, it's merited because the last time the planet collectively had this much debt was after World War II. And at the end of World War II, um, you know, what happened is the Treaty of Bretton Woods, uh, they restated the entire monetary system. So there, there are people that are very anxious to do that. 
because they're tired of living under a system where the US dollar is the world's global reserve currency. Uh, Christine Lagarde, the, the, the head of the European Central Bank, former head of the World Bank, has been working for a long time on a synthetic currency uh, that, that creates a reserve that's uh, a basket of currencies where the US is but one of them. Uh, and, and in a way, Libra, as originally proposed, was that synthetic currency. So on, on the issue of currency, um, you know, is, is your view that we want to we want to maintain a strong dollar, we need to save the dollar, we need to reform the Federal Reserve uh, to rein in QE and to kind of uh, restore some uh, financial restraints, right, it, raise interest rates, even if it causes some short term pain. Um, and then, and then on, on a budgetary side, you know, cut spending by 40%, right? <laughs> or 30%, um, I think are the numbers in order to, to get rid of the deficit. It just seems like it's, uh, it's not going to happen until the crisis is already in play. Yeah, it's, you're right. And um, there, I, I've gotten, when I first ran for Congress, I had a saying that said, you know, don't bankrupt America. And you seem like that's, Surely we could live up to that, right? Let's not bankrupt America. Then I got here and I realized how bipartisan the desire to spend the money was. And virtually every group that comes in, the pitches go something like this. Hi, I'm so-and-so. This is our cause. Humma, humma, humma. Just spend the money, you know? And, and uh, it, it kind of always ends with that. And, and so Congress being what it is, they generally just spend the money, maybe not as much or as fast as people want to. So I changed that to saying, it's not compassionate to bankrupt America because that's where there isn't even a pay down principle, right? There's only ways to service the interest. And part of what's going is you, you have a central planner, the Federal Reserve setting interest rate policy. In a lot of ways, it's a reciprocal relationship between the Fed and Treasury where they're set, and, and Congress where they're setting an interest rate that holds the payments on the interest uh, um, at a lower number than the market would produce, uh, and, and therefore you have the quantitative easing. So, look, I, I think the right thing is, we, you know, as a country, we are well served by having the world's reserve currency. Uh, there's a, um, you know, tripping dilemma uh, that that has consequences when you're the world's reserve currency. You do have to print more money because there's global demand for your currency, uh, and, and it makes it really hard to uh, to not be a net importer. Uh, because of that, uh, balance of payments issues and whatever, that gets really into the weeds for a lot of folks. But uh, at the end of the day, that's the Fed's job. They're supposed to be in those weeds and understand them. And I do think the Federal Reserve, and I've pleaded with them to adapt, uh, um, um, to deviate from the global consensus of um, holding rates low and driving them even lower. Um, they're incentivizing our banks to do this because they're they're paying interest on excess reserves for banks that hold cash at the, at the Fed. And uh, Fed, absent that, the banks would buy more treasuries. Right? So you would be, yeah, I don't know how much more. So if you change some of these policies, uh, I think you would see rates rise. Um, uh, and I think that would be a great thing for uh, the wealth gap for one, uh, for asset price inflation for another. The market doesn't want that, right? I mean, frankly, holders don't want that because they don't want uh, anything to change the value of the, the, the assets they're holding. Um, but but uh, on balance, I think our country would be well served by having a more market-driven rate. Um, but I'm a personally a fan of, um, you know, having a central bank 
um, but a, a central bank that's much more constrained in terms of what it can do. Uh, and, and as an example, when you look at the end of uh, March and early April, um, we had a real liquidity crisis. And having a central bank provided an incredible amount of stability um, that wouldn't have been there with a complete fixed uh, system. Um, at, at, for example, with markets work when there's equilibrium between buyers and sellers, in the panic, there was no buy side for really safe assets like municipal bonds. I mean, not municipal bonds from Puerto Rico, but like municipal bonds from you know, Ohio State University. Ohio State University isn't gonna go out of business, right? They're gonna be able to service their debt um, and, and uh, things like this. So the Fed created a municipal lending facility that really got the market back to functioning. The concern I've got is just like yesterday's announcement from um, the, the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Powell, that they're gonna continue to add assets to their balance sheet, roughly $120 billion of asset purchases that isn't a response to a liquidity crisis. That's an economic distortion that supports the market above what the real equilibrium is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, on, on that March 12th uh, liquidity crisis, uh, you know, Bitcoin crashed as well to $3,600. So it, it, it was a big red candle down. Um, it eventually found a, a market clearing price. I do wonder though, Without the Fed, maybe Bitcoin would have gone lower, right? Because all of these balance sheets are in, in some ways connected. So sometimes investors have to sell Bitcoin in order to get dollars in order to pay dollar denominated liabilities. And so whenever there's a liquidity crisis, uh, Bitcoin itself uh, takes a big dip. Um, and, and then it, it, it rebounded from that. Um, so it, the, the, but that's really, you know, that's just my own interest in Bitcoin. I think, though, that the um, with regards to the central bank and constraining um, it and and incentivizing it really to go in a different direction, I think currency competition and and the free market for currencies is ultimately what constrains central banks, and that if they don't um, act in a responsible manner, then ultimately they'll see devaluation and they'll see an increasing number of people betting against them. Um, and, and, and historically, you know, we might call that a speculative attack, right? Where George Soros um, was questioning the, the UK central bank as um, they were trying to stabilize their exchange rate. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope that there is not a dollar currency crisis or that there would be issues in the exchange rate. But when we look at the US dollar to Bitcoin exchange rate, it, it looks like there is a crisis, right? That Bitcoin just hit an all-time high above its 2017 peak. Um, and, you know, after 2017, a lot of mainstream commentators said Bitcoin was going to zero and that it was just a tulips. It was just a bubble. And, and here we are, and it just seems stronger than ever. Um, do you think that uh, the government or policymakers should see Bitcoin as an opportunity, right? That they could, um, you know, benefit by having a reserve of Bitcoin, you know, like we have a reserve of oil um, in, in case of contingencies or, or should they really only see it as a, as a threat to dollar sovereignty? Yeah, I definitely don't think they should see it as a threat as to how much Bitcoin should the, you know, US government or the Federal Reserve hold. You know, I would be concerned a little bit about an economic distortion from them 
acquiring it if there was ever a need for the U.S. government to acquire it. Um, you know, they could. We do hold a lot of gold, though. And, and frankly, why do we hold it? Because it's a good store of value. And I really think the Treasury should look at any asset that could be a really good store of value. Um, and, and I think for a lot of people, they see Bitcoin as a store of value uh, that is secure and fungible, uh, frankly, more liquid than gold uh, most, most of the time. Uh, but yeah, there has been more volatility to it than others, uh, than some would like. Um, you know, so that's, that's uh, some objection some folks in the government would raise. But, you know, to, you know, your point on, um, on competition, uh, when the Fed takes action, right? I mean, if the Fed said, you know what, we're going to have an equal amount of gold and Bitcoin, and we're going we're gonna to add this to, uh, or the U.S. Mint was going to put this in the Treasury, you know, uh, then obviously the price would go up. And, and when you look at um, what, what the Fed is doing right now, they're essentially saying, we're going to buy assets, marketable securities right now. We're going to keep buying them, and uh, there's no end in sight to us buying them. We're going to keep growing our balance sheet. Um, you know, that is essentially don't bet against the Fed, right? You, you're long the Fed and inherently that means in this scenario, you're short the dollar. So, you know, that was a, a surprising amount of attention to a tweet that I had to Forbes asking, how do you explain crypto in 2020, uh, in three words and like short the dollar. I mean, that's basically it is I, I don't, I believe that this printed money is destroying the value of my cash. Um, and therefore, I want to put it into other things. And uh, increasingly, as people have looked at the fungibility and the utility as a store of value of uh, Bitcoin in particular, but other digital assets, uh, their value has gone up uh, very noticeably during the course of the year. But it's also gone up in other, other, other things, other marketable security or, you know, Bitcoin, not, not a marketable security. A lot of those are equities and utility. Bonds, yeah. But uh, real estate's gone up, you know, the S&P 500's gone up, you know, all kinds of uh, alternative assets uh, have gained in value. Gold has, art has, uh, things that people believe they can store their cash somewhere to not have it destroyed by the Fed's play. So and I think that's going to continue to be the case uh, as long as there, you, if you think Congress is going to keep spending massively more than they collect in revenue, and massively more than any market force will lend, then you know that the dollar is going to be continue to be destroyed. And you, you know, the play is don't bet against the Fed, you know, long the Fed, short the dollar. And I think the market is increasingly looking at his ad as the paradigm that's going to hold for the foreseeable horizon. This being said, like they obviously they they view it as as some level of a threat, and um, we've we've seen reports come out from say the Department of Justice um, concerned about how people uh, might use various uh, digital goods for illicit activity, and more recently there's been a lot of rumors about the Treasury Department um, trying to find ways to enact more KYC and AML regulation um, for this same purpose. Um, you wrote a letter. Uh, to Steve Mnuchin um, that you posted on Twitter to great fanfare. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how we might go about teaching, uh, you know, these, these people in high places uh, uh, that are controlling the U.S. dollar to understand that this is, uh, you know, not the threat in the way they want to imagine it? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm all ears in terms of uh, teaching techniques, um, 
I think of this little viral YouTube clip where this uh, little, little boy was looking up at his mom where he wanted the cookies and he's like, he's like, Linda, Linda, you're not listening. He kept doing his fingers like this, he's like, you're not listening. And he kept trying to get her attention to do something. And his mom was like calmly explaining to him, he's like, you're not listening. And uh, I think on a lot of issues, it's like the people just aren't listening. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's a uh, inability to understand, uh, a refusal to understand, or if it's simply a complete power play to protect the status quo. Uh, motive, ascribing uh, motives is, uh, is often difficult, but I know the effect of what would happen is if some of the, the pro rumored proposals from Treasury uh, took effect, it, it, would, it, it would be a complete gift to the status quo, and it would effectively, not just for the payment systems, but true distributed ledger uh, depends on peer-to-peer -peer transactions with no intermediary. And uh, it's, an, it's a completely different architecture. It's a more secure architecture. Listeners to this podcast will almost certainly understand that. Um, but the number of my colleagues that understand that is small. Uh, and frankly, among the people that do understand it, you know, very well, uh, there, there is a desire to block it because it disrupts the status quo so much. And, uh, and if you look, there's a good, uh, I think it was in Vox uh, about money laundering, for example. One of the reasons why they say they have to have all this authority to control everything is, you know, just to keep us safe, right? Well, they have all that authority with uh, cash transaction reports, uh, suspicious activity reports, uh, know your customer rules, um, Bank Secrecy Act requirements. And yet, you know, overwhelmingly, the money that is laundered, the taxes that are evaded, the illicit finance that happens isn't even in bags of cash. It's between big banks uh, around the world. So, you know, they keep wanting to use the same tools that already don't work. If you look at the news this week, it's all about a big hack of databases. And those databases that contain personally identifiable information with a central authority are inherently more vulnerable than the most secure blockchain architecture and I think you really get it right. You probably get 50% of the, the, the battle won if you just construct the architecture the right way um, where you have true distributed ledger and a, a functional blockchain. I think that is the innovation that's inspired far more than Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain um, use cases. And then we're at the very tip of the iceberg. So, you know, I, I really fear that there's going to be a lot of collateral damage regardless of the motive. Uh, if, if you essentially preclude peer-to-peer -peer transactions uh, effectively in the United States. So, yeah, so. Uh, there's certainly like a national security, cybersecurity issue with this when you have, you know, if someone hacks into the treasury, you know, it all the, the dollar itself is just a big, you know, digital database. You can just, you know, clear it out. You can, you know, move money around uh, and, and you basically fully pwn the dollar, whereas in Bitcoin, it's it would be extremely difficult to find, you know, a zero-day inflation bug. Not that you know people haven't uh, found um, things like this in the, the past that have been uh, fixed, but the the level of difficulty of that is much higher. And what would tend to happen is, you know, an individual uh, might get hacked, and there would be economic damage from that. Uh, but the system as a whole would not be threatened. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, it is an important architecture. And that's, that's something to clarify. It's not like it's 
completely without vulnerabilities. And I think one of the one of the things with people that do understand this, that are in Congress, that are asking thoughtful questions, you know, one of the things that made banks um, restore confidence after runs on the banks and you know fears and scares banks that collapsed uh, is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, right? The idea, and that number's been raised, but the idea that you can have a quarter million dollars in cash in a bank, and if you're going to hold significantly more than that, you, a lot of times people will hold that cash in different banks so that they're effectively covered, right? And uh, as, as unfortunately a lot of people know, if you've lost your private keys, well, you just lost however much that was, whether that was, you know, uh, you know, 200 bucks or 200 million. That's, that's very true. It, 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 the, the, and I would be open-minded to regulators helping us with cybersecurity and, and helping us keep, stay safe. Um, my concern is when, when they can't keep their own systems secure and, and when they're not keeping themselves safe, um, that I, I believe it undermines their credibility and that they, they need to reestablish confidence in, in their own um, procedures. And, and so I, I hope that this uh, recent cybersecurity attack will help them focus on um, you know, their, their own affairs, keeping those in order before uh, choosing to expand their authority and to, to collect more data. Um, and the other part of it though I find troubling is that um, I think that the founding fathers uh, wanted the government to use warrants as part of criminal investigations rather than blowing down people's front doors and uh, searching their house without a warrant or um, doing the same to their bank, right? That, that their bank would get searched without a warrant or that, or even that the bank would proactively send a suspicious activity report purely based on the fact that the transaction was more than $10,000. I don't know that the founding fathers envisioned that when they um, drafted and passed the, 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 the constitution and, and really you know, tried to protect people's privacy I think that they really were concerned about privacy after their negative experiences with their previous government. Um, and, and it's shocking to me that the Bank Secrecy Act is still around in its current form and that it hasn't been challenged to the Supreme Court. Something I really um, enjoyed this year was listening to uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, testify as part of her confirmation hearings. And I really think that now there's um, a really strong Supreme Court that, that would, you know, look at the Constitution and look at these statutes and, and see that there's a conflict here and that it is causing tremendous negative impacts on Americans' financial privacy, but also on United States national security. These were state actors who compromised this data. Um, and this data might have information about um, people with classified intelligence access, members of Congress, right? The, the, are the president's financial transactions in FinCEN databases of AML, right? So I think that there's so many problems here that it's, how, how, do, we, how do we move forward here and, 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 and resolve the situation? Yeah, I, I keep saying, I mean, you're speaking my language, man. I mean, you're right on a message here. You, you're going to come to Congress and join the Fourth Amendment Caucus. <laughs> I, I would love to. Um, are there any seats opening up in Texas? I, I'm in Austin, so uh, I'm open to the idea. 
<laughs> hey, keep your eye on that. I, you know, we'll see, we'll see where things go there. Uh, but, you know, defenders of privacy, you know, look, uh, I always think about the, the um, you know, Ben Franklin quote, you know, when coming out of the Constitutional Convention, you know, he was asked, you know, what have you wrought, sir? Like, hey, what'd you guys just do? Uh, and he says, uh, we have a republic if you can keep it, you know, and, and the people have to be the body that keep it. They have to expect it and demand it. And it, it really is amazing to me, you know, how much uh, the average American tolerates the invasion of their privacy. Uh, and, and nowhere is it more abridged than your financial records. I mean, you have no real privacy. Frankly, to operate a bank in the United States, you essentially say, I want to operate a bank. And they say, great, we're going to deputize you. And if you spy on all your customers sufficiently, we're going to allow you to continue to operate a bank in the United States. Uh, I mean, the terms and conditions are phrased differently, but that's the net deal uh, in, in, in exchange for running a bank. Uh, and, and in some cases, uh, you could probably take that so far as to say to operate any money service business, you're essentially engaged in surveillance on behalf of the government on your, on your customers. Um, and, you know, you think about in the news, we talked a, a little earlier about Ross Ulbricht. Uh, and the Silk Road sentencing where, you know, double life sentences plus 40 years with no, uh, you know, no uh, possibility of parole. Um, you know, that, that seems unjust and a violation of the Eighth Amendment. But Edward Snowden um, was a whistleblower that, you know, while I can't fully support the actions he took, uh, the reality is he, he made public something that uh, our intelligence community was lying to Congress about, you know, uh, Director of National Intelligence Clapper came to Congress, testified under oath, lied that uh, they were collecting information that um, then is made public that they are. And healthy debate, uh, but the court really does need to rule and Congress really should take action. If you think about it in the private sector, a lot of billionaires have been made essentially with data arbitrage. They're collecting data and monetizing it uh, in a huge way. And the average person's making that trade to have free email or better, faster web searches or whatever else. Uh, they're giving away a little bit of data at a time. And a lot of billionaires have been made off of it. Uh, but our culture is really undermined by that. And I, I think our founders would be absolutely shocked. Uh, they would be awed by the things we can do though um, which is, uh, you know, a testament, but I, I think we do one of the most over, overdue actions by Congress is to have a highly, a very broad, um, highly effective, um, uh, regulatory reform with respect to privacy. I hope we see that in the next Congress. Excellent. Uh, well, we'll wrap it up now that we're at the top of the hour. Um, do, do we have uh, any last uh, questions, Michael, uh, before uh, we close it out? I guess, uh, you know, if you have like a call to action for, uh, you know, Bitcoiners listening, I think uh, myself included, we, we tend to shy away from politics uh, because it's, it, it feels hopeless. Uh, it feels like you, you can't get anything done. And yet, uh, you know, maybe that's not the case. And, you know, if, if you have comments on how it might not be the case and what Bitcoiners could be doing um, to ensure that they can continue to uh, stand up for their own rights uh, around monetary freedom and privacy and, you know, all other American freedoms while they're at it, uh, I would love to hear your, your closing thoughts on that. 
Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. And look, in my view, you can't defend freedom unless you defend sound money, right? But, you know, the, the holders of Bitcoin and other digital assets are politically very diverse. I mean, ideologies all over this, all over the place. You know, a lot of folks, frankly, live in, in uh, coastal areas that are generally far left of where, you know, Western Ohio, where I live, uh, um, is. And I just hope that we can avoid having the contempt for one another that seems to be so prevalent in our culture and engage in dialogue like this. So it's always great. You know, I remember like the you know, women of color in a uh, blockchain had an event and I had um, all these uh, great conversations with folks who on any number of other issues had, you know, you know, divergent ideas from what would be popular in, in my part of America. And I think the big thing in our country right now is we, we need less contempt, more respect, more dialogue. And with respect to uh, digital assets, we do need legislative clarity. And so to do that, I, I don't know it's going to turn into a great political slogan. But uh, while thankfully, generally, members of Congress have support from their districts, the institution as a whole, people don't have much confidence in. So I think one of the things we're going to do is if we're going to truly quote, uh, to co-opt a, a slogan, if we're going to truly make America great again, we're going to have to actually make Congress great again, or at least functional again. And uh, there's a lot of dysfunction right now. And I don't know that we're going to do all that uh, reform with just contempt for one another. The legislative process inherently gives respect to other people's opinions and, uh, and frankly, a vote. Uh, and so we have to make that functional. Uh, so even though some things I don't like or support would pass, uh, I think we have to reform the process so that if you follow the rules and it's germane, you can do it. So if there's any community that can be passionate about something, I've seen that uh, the Bitcoin community can be really passionate. And if we can at least get those folks to say, you know, we have to make Congress actually functional, I think it'll increase the odds that we actually get a hearing uh, and dialogue on some of these things and maybe even recorded votes someday soon. What I would love to see to increase accountability would be that um, the, the Congress has a multi-sig, multi-signature uh, crypto spending, right? So that, you know, Congress has the power of the purse, but all too often it delegates that power. Um, and what I'd like to see is that each member is really, you know, directly responsible for the act of spending the money. Um, now, that might not be possible with the U.S. dollar. Maybe it'll be possible with uh, central bank digital currency. It would certainly be possible with Bitcoin. Um, and so uh, maybe, maybe we'll see uh, that emerge as a system of accountability. Um, and uh, thank you for, for coming on today. I'm, uh, Michael and I are very grateful um, that you took the time to, to answer our questions. Um, I hope they, they were uh, fair questions and uh, to, to hear, hear us out on our thoughts. Um, actually, one thing that I forgot to address is the IRS tax form has now a question asking you, are you doing anything crypto related? And to me, that question is too, too broad and that the IRS really should only ask about taxable events, right? Transactions that have a, a tax liability attached to them and that they shouldn't really be asking about anything else um, because that's irrelevant to, to, to the to the filing of the return. So um, I'll, I'll forward that to your office and, and maybe that's something that we could work with the IRS on improving. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, it goes right to where we're talking. I mean, the 16th Amendment is a gross violation of privacy. 
And, you know, my fear is, is that's just another attempt to try to criminalize more people by asking such an open, broad-ended question, open, overly broad question. Uh, there's no good way to answer it. Uh, you mean, did I search uh, the internet for crypto prices and, and have that show up on my feed every day? Oh, you meant something more than that? Exactly what did you mean? You know? <laughs> and, the mere intention of buying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thought crime. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. All right. Uh, thank you again, sir. And we look forward to having you back on the show uh, soon, hopefully with, with good news, right? With uh, maybe a proposed bill uh, in the House or um, changes to the rules of the House to, to make it uh, more productive. Yeah, I hope so. And hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, prevail uh, against what seems to be uh, troubling odds with Secretary Mnuchin and uh, at least get him to go through a legislative process instead of his uh, rushed rulemaking path that he's uh, contemplating. Now, I'm sorry, you just mentioned Mnuchin, so I'm obligated to ask, what, what are your thoughts on um, Janet Yellen? I, I know that it's still not clear that she will be our next Treasury Secretary, but hypothetically. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, she's, she's nominated, I think she'll likely be confirmed by the Senate. Um, you know, she was mostly respected at the Fed. Um, and I, I think the big thing that I'm curious about, uh, you know, I won't get a questioner uh, unless she does get confirmed uh, in, in the House, uh, then the Treasury Secretary would come to the House regularly. One of my questions will be when I get a chance to talk to her is uh, when she was chair of the Fed, there, the Fed had said they're going to leave the faster payments initiative to the private sector. Right. And since then, Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve Board has said, you know, we're taking over faster payments and they have a whole faster payments initiative that the Fed is dominating. And the private sector literally put tens of billions of dollars of capital into that space. If you look at DeFi and the uh, emerging fintech market, a lot of it does deal with faster payments and all that can be completely annihilated by a poorly thought out uh, central bank dominated system. Um, they could enable it if they get it right, but, you know, we'll see where they go. It, it definitely clear that they're not going to destroy it if they're leaving it to the private sector, as Janet Yellen was doing when she was chair of the Fed. Yeah, it sounds like they should just use the Lightning Network, uh, which enables uh, instant uh, Bitcoin transfers, but I'm sure that they could make a dollar version uh, of I that. just hope that at any hearing, there's someone in the background with the buy Bitcoin sign uh, to remind everyone how to counter <laughs> any negative effects of her uh, actions. So uh, Warren Davidson, thank you so much for coming on. We're really honored to have you on for a second time. Um, and like Pierre said, I hope we get to uh, you know, have you on again soon with good news. Yeah, great to talk with you all. Hopefully uh, we'll see one another in person somewhere again soon someday. And uh, in the meantime, stay safe and have a, have a great uh, holiday season. Cheers and happy holidays, sir. Bye. Take care. Oh.
was blind.